When I was in seminary, there was a professor, Dr. Lawrence, who used a kind of an illustration or a little bit of an allegory to explain what's happening in Romans chapters 5 and 6, and it's always kind of stuck with me, so I thought I would uh, share it with you as we prepare to, to look at this section this morning. It's a tale of two kings, King Sin and King Grace. Now, King Sin was a, a wicked and ruthless ruler who ruled over a, a place called Graveland. His kingdom was called Graveland because everyone who was born under his power uh, was enslaved to him, and they, they had to obey him all the way to their death. Now, King Sin gained his power over this land through deception and truth-twisting, and it was that same kind of characteristics of being a liar and promising false things that, that he ruled over his, his people by. He made promises to his people, but they were always uh, tied to a string of, of consequences. So the people of Graveland, they lived under this constant fear and guilt and sadness and feelings of condemnation. King Sin gave gifts to his people to keep them loyal, but those gifts always rusted. They left the people empty and wanting more. It was like cotton candy. The people of Graveland had no escape, and worse yet, many people actually thought it wasn't so bad until the end, when it was too late, and they met death. But there was another king, a king who loved the people under King Sin's reign, and he came to deliver them from his oppression. He was a good king, and his name was King Grace. King Grace battled against King Sin, and he defeated him, and he sent word into Graveland that any who would forsake King Sin were free to come and to live under his rule. And in his land, King Grace ruled with honesty and with humility. He gave his people good and lasting gifts and protected them with his love. And many heard about this victory that King Grace had over King Sin, and because of that, they, they, they flocked to their new home in freedom. Other people thought the idea sounded kind of foolish. A new king. Why would we need a new king? And others thought it was too good to be true. There's nobody who can get us out of this mess with King Sin. But those who left, they found that their new home under King Grace was greater than they ever could have imagined. Their lives were filled with love there was peace, there was joy, there was freedom there. But despite the goodness of their new life, many still struggled to enjoy their freedom. And the reason wasn't because King Grace had failed them, but rather because they still listened to the calls from King Sin. You see, though King Sin was defeated, he still sent threatening and charming letters to his people, calling them to come back home for a little while and to enjoy some of the good old times, to have some of the old pleasures that they used to know and love so much. And the people who lived under King Grace, they, they knew that King Grace was good, and they knew that King Sin was a liar, and they knew that everything that he said was always a lie, and that it was never good, but there was just something in them that at times would listen. And they would go out and sneak out and go back to Graveland and enjoy some of their old ways. Be filled with, with grief. And this grieved King Grace as well, but he was a patient and merciful king. And he graciously forgave their treasons and extended them more mercy and more love where their sin abounded, His grace abounded all the more. It doesn't seem odd that people who would be under King Grace would even think for a moment to go back to Graveland. To go back to a life where there was slavery. To go back to a life where there's death. To go back to a place where you know there's just going to be shame and you know there's going to be consequences and you know it's not worth it. Doesn't it seem odd that people 
would make that trek back and put themselves under his power again. Although that's an allegory, I trust that you can see the truths that are in that. I would say that most of those truths are found in Romans chapter 6, which is where we will be this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn me to Romans chapter 6. It will be on page four, or 942, if you're looking at the, uh, the Bibles that are provided for you there. Page 942, Romans chapter 6. Now most of what we've learned in Romans so far is reflected in the story of the two kings. We learned a couple weeks ago, in Romans chapter 5, that we are all born in Adam. Which means because of Adam's sin in the garden, that we are all born under the curse of sin. We are all born in sin, condemned before God. And this shows itself to be true by the fact that we all, in different ways, yes, but we all live in rebellion against God. That we use our heart, soul, mind, and strength to, to turn against our Creator, which results in death and judgment. But we've also seen in Romans chapters 1 through 5 that in his mercy that Jesus came to rescue us by dying for our sins and, and being raised from the dead. And Romans 1.16 says that this good news, or the gospel, is God's power to save us. That is the message that goes out into the world that says there's freedom from sin. Come and live under the God of grace, Jesus himself. And for those who, who believe, we see in chapters 3 through 4 that God will forgive all of their sins and that they will be declared right with God. It's called justification. It's a legal declaration. Treasons are forgiven. You are given citizenship. You're a child of the king now. and You live in the freedom and the goodness of his reign. Come in and enjoy. That's chapters three and four and, and a bit of five as well. So if we are in Christ through faith, we are no longer under sin. And as chapter five concluded, it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we are in Christ, we are no longer under sin, but we are now under grace. So then how should we respond? If this is true, if this is what God has done for us in Christ, how should we respond? Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 this week, and then 15 through 23 next week. Let's follow along. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. So you also must consider, consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought 
from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So literally, you could do like 50 sermons on this, okay? This is an amazing section of scripture. But we are going to this morning be considering three main ideas in these first 14 verses. They are, the first thing is that we must remember that God made us alive in Jesus. We must remember that God made us alive in Jesus. That's going to be our first point. It's going to go verses 1 through 10. It's going to be by far the longest point, okay? Then, our second point is that we must continually consider who reigns over us. We must continually consider who reigns over us. That's verses 11 and 12. And then thirdly, we must continually present ourselves to God in worship. We must continually present ourselves to God in worship, which is verses 13, really only verse 13. We're going to look at 14 next week, okay? So let's look at our first point, the longest. We must remember that God made us alive in Jesus. That's verses 1 through 10. Now, this, this chapter begins in verse 1 with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Meaning, how should we react to what we learned in chapter 5 and really all of the first five chapters? What should our response be to the gospel of grace? What should we do now that we've been delivered from death and from condemnation? Then he asks another question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So is that the right response? Should we, should we just keep on sinning so that we can get more grace? Meaning, if Jesus saved me and I did nothing to earn it and I can do nothing to lose it, does it mean that I can now just do whatever I want to do and just keep drawing upon this bottomless bank account of his grace? Is that what I can do? Is that, is that what we should do? Now, if the gospel is explained correctly, and Shai pointed this out to me this week when we were talking about this text, I think he's right. If, if we understand the gospel correctly, that is the question that will naturally follow. Because in Christ, we are free. You're free. Shackles are off, chains are gone, dungeon, you're out, you're out of the grave. You're free. Green pastures. It's all yours. We don't know what to do with freedom. Because our whole life we've been trained to think, well, with my freedom, what I want to do in my freedom is I want to sin. That's what I love. But now we get a new heart and a new spirit and we're a new life and we don't know what to do with it. The temptation is to think this. We're just going to keep sinning. If God's going to keep forgiving, I'm going to keep sinning. That's, that's what our natural dead or the, the, the flesh is going to say. Because the gospel says that we were sinners who could do nothing to escape from king sin slavery, but Jesus came and rescued us based on nothing that we did, nothing that we earn or deserve. And on that cross where he died, it says in verse 10, once for all. That's all of the sins for all of the people who will ever trust in him. That means, hear this, if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, that means that Jesus died for all the sins that you ever committed, the sins that you're committing right now, and every sin that you can ever and will ever commit. He died for them all. Every one of them is paid in full. You've got your check. Done. Paid in full. You did nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing to lose it, because salvation is from the Lord. It's a gift. He gives it freely. And our natural flesh's response is, so you're saying, so you're saying that if, if I sin, he's going to forgive me. Yes, already done, as far as the east is from the west. You're saying that if I keep sinning, he's just going to keep on forgiving. That's right. Hmm. And this is where people have pointed out and they've said, well, then I'm not going to change my life. If that's true, if grace is true, then I'm going to just lie on my taxes and, and God will forgive me because I need a little extra money and maybe I'll use some of it for his purposes. Or if, if grace is true, then you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and look at porn and I'm going to go ahead and sleep with whoever I want because, because God will forgive me. Now listen, 
I have people in my office say that to me. They're like, well, I just did it because I knew God would forgive me. Or, or if grace is true, then I don't need to really change my life. I don't really need to change my schedule. I don't really need to commit to a local church. I, I'm free in Christ. Jesus has paid for it. I can kind of just do whatever I want. I can have an apathy towards, towards the fact that we are in a world that is perishing. And that the only good news that can rescue it is the gospel. And that Jesus has given us that gospel to go and to proclaim to the earth. And to apply to one another's lives. To help one another to heaven. That we can have this apathetic attitude toward it. And just think, hey, I'm free. Jesus is paid. I don't need to change my life. I can be selfish. Is that the right way to respond to grace? Paul says in verse 2, by no means, no way, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says that's absurd. Christians don't love sin that killed their best friend. You don't love it. It puts your Savior on a cross. Why would you love that sin any longer? It's done nothing good for you. It's done nothing but lie to you. And this is the idea that drives verses 3 through 10. That everything that he's about to tell us here, that he's, and what we're going to see is that he's not going to command us to do a thing in these 10 verses. Not, not until verse 11. That's going to be the first command in this section and the first command in the whole book. Rather, he's going to proclaim to us the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus, because he wants us to know something. Look at verse 3. Do you not know? Verse 6, we know. Verse 9, we know. God wants us to know something about what he has done for us in Christ before he tells us what to do. And actually, that's how God always does it. He wants you to be really clear that he has done, therefore we respond. It's always that way. And the foundational thing that God has done for us in Jesus in this section is that he has, he has grafted us into Christ who is our life. And the illustration that he uses is that of baptism. Look at 3 and 4 again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And you may ask, now, why, is he, why is he talking about baptism here? And is he saying that baptism saves us? Well, is he saying that water baptism saves us? He's not saying that water baptism saves us, okay? He's speaking here about a spiritual baptism that unites us by faith with Christ. There's a spiritual baptism that happens. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, a bath, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a different kind of baptism. It's not the, not the wet, not get wet, not get dunked, but rather there's a spiritual baptism. It's an appeal to God for a clear conscience, a turning away from sin and a turning to God in faith. That is a spiritual baptism that saves us. That's what, what, that's what happens when we believe in Christ. We're united by the Holy Spirit of God into Christ by the power of God. And we get Jesus' life. It's a spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So our spiritual baptism unites us with Christ as a body called the church. And our spiritual baptism is followed then by a physical baptism that, that publicly uh, shows our profession. And it unites us with a local visible church where we live out that profession. So that's what happened last Sunday. If you were here last Sunday, Stephen got baptized. A year ago, he was an atheist in China. Now, he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And what he did was he got up there and he told everybody, hey, listen, y'all, this is what happened. He didn't say it like that, but he said, listen, this is what happened. 
I was an atheist, I didn't believe in God, but then I began reading through the Bible and I saw that there is a creator and that I sinned against my creator and that Jesus came for sinners like me and he died and he rose from the dead and I believe in him. And that is a testimony to the spiritual baptism that united him with Christ. And then he went down in the water as a public picture of what happened. So when he says here that baptism now saves you, he's speaking about this, this spiritual baptism. It's a, it's a picture that an old man dies. That as Jesus died and went into the grave and rose, that same thing happens with us. We died. Came out of the water, a symbol of cleansing. Came out washed, clean, forgiven, new, alive. That is what happens in Christ. And now we are alive in him, born again, set apart by him, given the Holy Spirit. We are free now to obey God and empowered by the Spirit to do so, to enjoy the lasting joys and freedoms and peace that is in Christ. And in verses 3 through 10, he's talking about this union, that this union with Jesus fundamentally changes everything about us. It changes us. You're not the same person. He changes everything. We're not who we used to be, so we must not do what we used to do is going to be what he's going to be getting after. You died with Christ. The old you is dead. When we were united with Christ through faith, what is true of him becomes true of us. We were slaves to king sin, but now we have died and we've been made alive to live under God's grace in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. That's why he says, remember this, that before we were united to Christ, our identity was rooted in all kinds of failing things. We found our security and our significance and our happiness in where we worked or what we wore or how we look or how much we weighed or whether we had a boyfriend or girlfriend or on our arm or whether people thought well about us whether we drove a certain car or whatever it may have been, we, we, we found our identity in that. But that identity was void of God. And the heartbreaking part about all of that is that, that we thought that we were free. But we were really enslaved. Because all of those things, they fade and they fail us. They're good gifts, but terrible God's. And we found our identity in them. But in Christ, he frees us from slavery. He puts the old man to death. The old you who is enslaved to to fearing whether you're going to be healthy or fearing people's opinions or lusting or having to be right all the time or having to be in control all the time or having to have some new thing. All of that, it's slavery. And it's a lie. But Jesus says, No more. How can we who died to sin still live in that? And that means that through faith we were united to Jesus and his death became our death. We were, verse 3, buried with him through baptism into death. We've, verse 5, been buried with him in a death like his. Jesus died, so our old man, old self, old rebel died too. The old Garrett is dead. Like, most of you didn't know me before I knew Jesus. That row knew me before I knew Jesus, my family. The old Garrett is dead, though. My old friends, they're like, you're a what now? My new friends are like, you did what? When I think about the way that I used to live and the way I used to think, it's like I'm hearing a story about some guy I used to know. The old Garrett died. The one who lied to everybody. The one who used everybody. The one who deceived everybody. The one who always had to have a a girlfriend on my arm to prove something. The one who couldn't go out near the end of, of my old life without having a drink or having a smoke because I just, I had to have something in me to loosen me up. I was enslaved to death, but the old man is dead. He died in Christ. There is a spiritual grave where Jesus went, and that's where the old you went as well. And that is what happens. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have to hear this. If 
you are in Christ by turning from your sins and trusting in him, the old you is dead. The old Jerry is dead. The old Mark is dead. The old Kelly is dead. The old Kanika is dead. The old Jerry is dead. Dead. Gone. Buried. Crucified with Christ. He did, he's not alive to reign and rule and live like he used to live anymore. He's dead. He died with Christ. He's dead. The good news about that is verse 7 the one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin was, we were condemned. The law said we were guilty. It was on us. We were guilty. We were declared guilty and condemned before God. But now because the death has been paid, the penalty has been paid in Christ, now we are declared right with God. Justified. Free. We've been set free from sin, slavery. But, in Christ, we don't just get his death. We also get his life. Verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too, might walk in the newness of life. When Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father or the power of the Father, he brought him forth in new life. And since we are united to him, we also come forth in new life. Verse 5 says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This resurrection, I believe, has the final day in view. That final day when Jesus will return and all those who have trusted in him will be brought out of the grave. They will be given new bodies. They will be united with him, glorified with him forever and ever. That's the hope of God's people. And I believe that that's ultimately what he has in mind here. But there is also an immediate resurrection that happens when we are born again. That the old dead heart is torn out. We are given God's spirit and we are made alive. Our sin-loving heart is taken out. And a God-loving heart is given to us. And we are united with him in his life. And through that union, everything in our life is transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. The new has come. And a new heart brings a new life. The old life is dead because Christ died. We're united with him. We have a new life because Christ was raised and we are united with him. Which means that our old loves, our old lies, our old ways, they are gone. They are nailed to the cross. They are left in that grave to die as they should. And now we are grafted into this, this life giver, Jesus himself. He's the vine, we're the branches. We're in him. We draw from his life and fruit is produced in our lives. There's newness. It changes everything. Remember a number of years ago, I heard a, a, a sermon by a pastor named Richard Owen Roberts um, who was telling this story. About, he was preaching on regeneration. It means to be born again. He was telling a story about uh, an, an elderly, wealthy man who he had met in the town and had been invited to his house for, for lunch or something like that. And he'd shared the gospel with this, this older man and his wife. And they were very wealthy, he said. They lived on this, like, palatial, you know, landscape place overlooking, you know, the valley with the trees and all this kind of stuff. And he said the guy, the guy believed and he was born again. And he said about a week later, he, he got an urgent phone call from him. And he said, I need you to come up to my house right now. And so... Pastor Roberts went up to the house and went in, and, and the man uh, who had been born again, he said, why didn't you tell me? Tell you what? What would happen to me if I believed? He goes, if I would have only known this earlier. He goes, you didn't tell me I get new eyes. He said, what do you mean? He said, come with me. And he said, he took him through every room. And he said, I never saw it before. I never saw the picture. That's my wife. He goes, for all these years, I, I haven't loved her right because I didn't see her right. 
She's a gift from God. I didn't know that until I got new eyes. He goes, I got new eyes. He goes, you see those flowers there? He goes, God made them. They don't do anything except be pretty. He said, I get new eyes. He said, come with me. And he took him into the, out on the deck. And he said, you see this? He said, you see the river. You see the mountain. You see the trees. You see the birds. You hear the birds. I got new ears. He said, just, he went on and on. He said, everything's new. Because he's got a new heart. When you are grafted in with Christ, old things pass away. And behold, new things come. There's life. And it's It's free. There's no shame in drinking that in. And there's no condemnation for relishing in that. There's nothing wrong with delighting in those things. Jesus' death and resurrection are more than just facts to believe. They are spiritual realities that we live in and we live out Where there is a new life, there is a new way of life that reflects the one to whom we have been united to. And this is a major part of our salvation. Jesus did not just come to save us from the judgment of hell. That is true. He came to do that. But that's not all that he came to deliver us from. He also came, yes, to deliver us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. But that power of sin, like that's real. We get to to be delivered from that. And that's what he says in verse 6, that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One of the purposes of Jesus' death was so that our body of sin would be brought to nothing. Or maybe your translation says made inoperative or rendered ineffective or caused to be idle. The picture is this, that, that, that we died so that the bodies that we used to use for death and were used to be enslaved to sin no longer have to be that anymore. Our bodies used to be bodies of death. So your physical body isn't, it's not evil. It's neutral. God made it. It's affected by the fall, certainly. That's why we all physically die. It's part of the reason we physically die. But it's neutral. Your physical, it's not bad. It's simply an instrument through which we either obey sin or obey God. It's an instrument. They aren't evil. They're fallen, but they aren't evil. But when we were under King Sin's reign, we used them for evil because we had to, because we were enslaved to him, and we had no power to say no. Have you ever felt that slavery to sin? Have you ever felt that slavery? I remember right sometime when I was beginning to read the Bible and God was was changing me and opening my eyes to the gospel. I'm not sure exactly where it was that I actually was born again, but in that process there, I remember I had been reading through the Bible a little bit, and I, what I used to do is I used to smoke weed, and then I'd turn on my black light and get out a highlighter and start reading through the Bible, because I thought the Bible was awesome after I'd smoked weed, and I'd started highlighting everything. But then what I started to realize really quickly was that I can't remember anything I just read. And that, for me, was the reason I said no more to this stuff. I can't think anymore clearly about God's Word. I can't pray clearly anymore because this stuff is clouding my mind. So you know what I did? I took it, I threw it in the trash can. Later on that night, I came back into my room I remember it was just like it came on me. Oh, just one more time. It's just one more, just one more joint. It's just this, just this last little bit. And I dug, I dug past all the food and the stuff that was in that trash can to get to the bottom of the trash can to get that dirt weed out of the bottom of it so I could smoke one more time. It owned me. Like it was, it was, I was a slave to sin. Some of us this morning feel this way. It's that anger. It just, it just gets on me and gets in me. And I just, I don't know what to, it just owns me. 
lust, I can't, can't stop looking. I can't, can't get it out of my mind. Coveting, I can't, I can't get it on Facebook without being angry and discontented in what God's given me because I just look at what everybody else has. Complaining, it's so much, I just, everything's wrong. Every, everything's broken. There's a fallen world, so I'm just going to complain about it all the time. You just feel that, like you've got you've to do that. But Jesus says that he came to set you free from that. The old man who's enslaved to sin, he is dead. And now he's given you new life, verses 7 through 10. The one who has died has been set free from sin. If we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's defeated it. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus defeated sin once for all. Hear this. You don't have to do what you used to do because you're not who you used to be. If you are born again, you're a new person. No matter what King Sin tells you you got to do, you don't have to do it because the old man's dead, the new man's alive in Christ. And this whole text is intended to, to shout that. You're free. You're free. You don't have to do it anymore. I heard some people tell a story about they had adopted, uh, I believe it was three Vietnamese children who were, were young but not infants, so somewhere between six and ten. They adopted three of them. And after about a week and a half of having, having them there in their home, kind of going through everyday life, and, and they, they, they noticed that there was a smell. There was some smell that just was not right. And they started going around and looking for what it was, and they came into to the kiddo's bedroom, and it was strong in there. And they began searching around, and what they found was that under the mattress... There's all kinds of food. And they, they called the kids in and they said, what, what, what's, up, what's up with the, the food under the mattress? And eventually it came out that the kids said that, that during dinner that they would, they would take some of the food off their plate and put it in their pocket and that they would take it up into their rooms and they would hide it because where they came from, they didn't know if they would get a meal the next day or for several days. So what they used to have to do was they would steal food and they would hide it places so that they could have enough. So the parents said it's time for a field trip. They loaded kids up in the car and drove them to a grocery store and took them up and down every aisle and showed them that we live in a land where you're going to have plenty. You will not run out here there is provision here. There is, there is a lot of provision for you. So you get what you want and enjoy. You don't have to live in fear anymore. He gave them this picture that they were going to be provided for in this new family. And that is what I think Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 is intended to do for us. To show you, give you a picture you're not living under death and slavery anymore, but you are free. You're alive, and you live under a good king now who's going to care for you and give you exceedingly abundantly more than you could ask for or imagine. He's a good God. So, now what? What should we do? Well, our second point, much briefer, is that we must continually consider who reigns over us. We must continually consider who reigns over us. This is verse 11, 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here in verse 11, we have hit a milestone in the book. This is the first imperative or command in the book of Romans. The first thing, so you've got five chapters and then half of six, right? He's laid this out. This is the first time that he gives you a command. And do you notice what the first command is there in verse 11? 
consider. That's amazing. He doesn't tell you, get, get busy with good deeds. Rather, he says, consider the good deeds that were done on your behalf in Christ. Five chapters of that I've given you. I, before I move on, I want you to think about it one more time, he says. That's why I took all that time on verse 1 through 10. The word consider means to make a mental note, to think about something in a particular way, to regard something. It's an accounting term that means to make a record of something. He says, consider this in your mind. Put this there. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Consider that you're dead to sin. You are alive to God. This is not, and this is not a a one-time prayer. This is not a walk the aisle. This is not join a club kind of decision. This is a daily decision. The word consider there is in the present form. It's the present tense, which means it's an ongoing command. It's a daily command. Keep on considering Jesus and his victory. Keep on thinking about what he has done. The first thing that Paul tells us to do in six chapters is to make it your most basic habit. As much as you breathe, breathe in this. Breathe in this gospel truth, he says. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What does God want from me? That's what he wants all the time, thinking about that. So when you wake up, you think I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. So rather than complain, I'm going to give thanks. Rather than fear, I'm going to trust. Rather than covet, I'm going to pray for contentment. How? How do we do that? There's no pill. There's no switch. There's no trick. The answer is to continually consider what Christ has done to you and for you on the cross. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones and Jerry Bridges call preaching the gospel to yourself. It's the practice of daily considering that we are flawed and sinful and that fleeing to Jesus through faith is our only hope because there we find a refuge at that blood-stained cross. It's regularly remembering that even though you didn't keep the law and you didn't obey and you didn't always glorify God, that Jesus did. He kept the whole thing all the way home. He did that for you. It's regularly reminding yourself that you are no longer condemned if you are in Christ. God is no longer angry at you. He's not up there with this tally thing. What he has done is he looks at you through the righteousness of his son. You are accepted. We've got to hear that day after day. He's pleased with you because you stand clothed in the righteousness of his son. And do you know why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves? Why? Listen to this from Jerry Bridges. He says, When you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you are. Check. And if you are not firmly rooted in the gospel, and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged, and you will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. That's revealing. That's, that's revealing to me. That's, that's why I grow weary. Is because I, I, I'm, I'm wired to think about my performance rather than Christ's. This is why it's important for us to think of what Christ has done. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see that language? It's that word reign. That's king language. It's power language. Sin wants to rule over you and control you. And do you see what sin is trying to capture? He's trying to go, he's going after your body. He wants your body. He wants your, your mind, your heart, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your affections. Sin wants to reign in your body so that you'll use your body for perversion and rebellion against God. It wants you to obey your body's passions. The word passions there, it's the word for desires or cravings. It's a heart word. Now, passions, again, like the body, are a neutral thing. Passions are not bad. So some of your translations say lusts there. That's true, but the the word, it's the idea of like your affections, your passions, your desires. Love is a wonderful passion. 
laughter, ambition, sex, those are all things that God has given that are good things unless sin gets a hold of it. And what King Sin wants is he wants you to come back and use your passions, your desires, your body in the old way. And we can't miss what he's saying here in verse 12. Because it is alerting us to the fact that there is a war going on for us. Do not let him reign, he says. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on right now for your heart, for your mind, for your soul, for your affections. There's a war going on. There's a part of you So the old man is dead, but there's a part of you that remains. It's called your flesh. It's that spiritual part of you that likes to listen to King's sin. So the question is, who will reign in your body? Who will reign in your mind? Who will reign in your desires? Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So when sin calls, we say, no, you're dead to me. I'm dead to you. I'm united to Christ. I'm following him. I am not your slave anymore. How many of you have an ex-employer? So somebody you used to work for. Okay, that's fine. All right, yeah. What would you do if tomorrow, on your way into work, while you're driving into work, your old employer calls you and says, hey, this is your old employer. I need you to go ahead and hustle up, and can you make us some coffee and run us some, some copies here in the office? What would your gracious Christ-like response be to that person? Well, in essence, you'd say, no. No, sir, no man. Because I don't work for you anymore. I've got a new job. Or I'm looking for a new job. This is better than where I used to be. But no. I'm not yours anymore. You don't do anything for me anymore. I'm, I'm dead to you. It's the same thing to Christ. In Christ that we do towards sin. In Christ we say, no sin. I, you're dead to me. When it calls, we don't say yes because we don't have to say yes because we are united with Christ who gives us life. Now, you might ask the question, can a, can a born-again Christian be enslaved to sin? Because he says don't let him reign. Can, can he be enslaved to sin? The answer is yes. It's not supposed to be that way. But it does happen. And how does it happen? It happens when we don't fight. It happens when we don't continually consider who God has made us in Christ. And when we let the traitor of temptation into the gates of our heart. And we listen to the invitation from King Sin to come back over. Use your body. Use your mind. Use your words for fleeting pleasures. And what happens, the way you get in sin, enslaved in sin you give in a little bit because that's all sin normally starts just just a little bit just one little time just one little step one little look one little call one little text message one little facebook browse one little this one dollar here one dollar there and it's next thing you know you've distanced yourself from the lord you've deadened your heart to his spirit you've grieved the spirit you've quenched the spirit and the next thing you know you feel enslaved again. Like, I, I feel like I have to do this. I, su- I suspect it's the Lord's providence in the way it has gone. The past week or two have been hard for me, just in general. And I've, it's been hard for me to pray. Like, I'll come to pray, and it's just it's hard to do. And I can just feel how sin, it's like he's saying, oh, you don't need it. It's just fine. And what I know is that a little here, a little there, and the next thing, my heart's gone. But we've got to hear that we are not enslaved to sin if we are in Christ. We don't need to be enslaved. So whether it's pornography for you, or anorexia, or anxiety, or prayerlessness, or drink, or drug, or despair, or materialism, Christ came to save you from that. Do not give up. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Which brings us thirdly and finally to number three, that we must continually present ourselves to God in worship. 
we must continually present ourselves to God in worship. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And we'll do chapter, verse 14 next week. So in light of what Christ has done, this is what we do. The, the key word in this verse, I need you to stick with me. This is practical. Stick with me. The word present is the key word in this verse. It means to offer, to dedicate, to make available to. It's the same word in 12.1, where we're told to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how God intends our bodies, our instruments, to be used. They are worshipful instruments through which God is to be enjoyed and honored. Our bodies are instruments or tools that will be used either for sin and his unrighteous purposes or for God and his righteous purposes. Hear this from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus shed his blood that the body of sin might be done away with. Jesus shed his blood to purchase us, our souls, yes, but it includes our bodies. Your body is not yours. Those eyes, they're not yours. Those ears are not yours. They're not mine. This mouth, it's not mine. It's his. These hands, they're not mine. They're his. Those bodies, they're not yours. They're his. He bought them with the blood of Christ and purchased. And now the body is a temple where the Spirit dwells and the Spirit fills us and gives us power that as we consider and we remember and we trust and we step out in faith and present our bodies, through that the Spirit produces life in us. Your members are his. Eyes, ears, mouth, mind, affections. Next week is all about that. We'll look at more of those. I'm going to conclude with two brief examples of how you put this into practice. Remember, consider, present. Remember, consider, present. So when it comes to reading the Bible into prayer, as God's people, we need to hear from God. We hear from Him through His Word. We need to draw near to God with our requests and our confessions. We do that through prayer. Reading the Word, praying. Those are... It's basic air and bread for Christians. Okay? But there is a war going on in your heart over you reading the Bible and you praying. Sin wants to reign. So it will tell you that you don't have time to read or that you need to do it later or that maybe you can do without it or you know what? You really know all the stories anyway so you don't need new manna. You go in the old manna. There's countless other lies. Or when you do sit down to read, and then all of a sudden, a thousand things that you need to do rush into your mind, right? And all of a sudden you think, actually, this might be the best time to rake the yard. This is really the time when I need to go clean the toilet. Or maybe, actually, you know what? I'm going to knock out that one email. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to pray or read. Or you know what? Actually, let me catch the news first, because then my prayer life will be informed, right? Whatever. We do that stuff. There's a thousand things that come at our hearts and our minds that are going to say, you don't need to hear from God. And the, what that is, and those things are all neutral that I just said. Break the law. And I was, good, thank you. Break the law. That's fine. But sin, sin wants us to get our eyes off of abiding and drawing near. So what you do is you remember. You remember the gospel. You're like, wait, I'm in need. I'm in trouble. Every day, I live in a world where there's lies that are pressing in on my mind. So the reason a Christian reads the Bible and prays is because you're being lied to all day long. Every single, the time you wake up and look at your phone or look at the news or wherever you go, there are lies all day long coming at you. Telling you that everything that you have isn't enough. That if you had somebody else's wife or husband or if you had one to start with, everything would be better. Just lie after lie after lie after lie. And what you need and I need is truth. But sin wants to reign. So you've got to remember, no, 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 I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. And then you've got to consider yourself such. No. 
there's no more important thing in the world than him. I need, I need him. I, this body is not mine, it's his. So whether it's five or 15 or 45 or an hour, I need to set that time and I need to go and I need to consider it his. And then you need to present. You need to turn off the TV, you need to shut off your phone, you need to turn off the computer, you need to open the Bible, you need to read it. And just start. And as you open it up, say, God, I don't even want to read. I don't even, I don't like it. I, I want pictures. I want whatever you think. Like, I, I want this to be different. Change my heart. But talk to him and cry out to him and say, God, I need to believe this. Help me to believe your word. And then you start reading it. And read it out loud so you can concentrate. Whatever you need to do. But you present your body. And then you don't do it by yourself. But you call somebody. You say, I need help. I don't read and I don't pray. And I'm dying. I need help. Would you ask me? Would you encourage? Would you pray for me? Let's help each other. If you're if you're married and you have kids, strategize with your spouse. Say, yo, I need 30 minutes. Can you guard the fort? I'm going in. All right? And you go in and you pray and you read. Husbands, serve your wives in that way. Wives, serve your husbands in that way. Keep me accountable in that. Keep us accountable in that. We need to be like that. Remember, consider present. Your second example and final one is is pornography or other death-giving stuff that we give our hearts and minds to. So a really good article I encourage you to look at is Why We Click on Stupid Links. Why We Click on Stupid Links by Tony Rinke. I sent it out to a bunch of you, um, a handful of you. If you want it, I'll send it to you. You can find it on Desiring God's website. Why We Click on Stupid Links, Tony Rinke. And what it's all about is about how our old our flesh loves death. We just, we want to find something from the old land. And whether it be pornography or whether it's those crazy stories about somebody getting killed in this way or that way or whatever, there's morbidity that our heart flocks to, to gossip about stars or to whatever this death is that our heart loves, whatever it is, it doesn't stir our affections for Jesus. It reminds us of to link in with fleeting things. So when you're at your computer, or you're on your phone, or you're watching TV, and all of a sudden you feel that urge to explore, and lust cries out, or your curiosity, it, it, it catches, your eye catches something, and says, just take a little step this way, just this once, you've got to understand what's happening in that moment. Sin is trying to kill you. It's waging war against your soul. It wants to destroy your life. It wants to fill your mind with lies about love, about sex, about a spouse, whether you have one or you don't have one. It wants to teach you lies. It's trying to kill you. This, if, you got a, if you got a phone call this morning saying somebody was, somebody's coming after you today, that would make you extraordinarily nervous but you would be on guard and first peter 5 8 says be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he wants to devour us so what do we do we remember i'm dead to sin and alive to god i don't have to look you don't have to look you don't have to look you don't have to look why because you're in christ you're united to him he has life you don't have to do what you used to do because you're not who you used to be. You don't have to. That's the first thing you've got to know. Some of you think you have to. You don't have to. Because the old man's dead. You need to consider that Jesus is your Lord and not let sin reign. Now sin will lie to you and say you must and you will. And you say no, you are dead to me. And remember it's lies. It's never told you truth. It's never been worth it. When's one time that you get done scrolling around the internet, if you've ever done that, and been like, man, that was worth it. That was amazingly worth it. All this guilt and this shame and this condemnation, all these lies I believe now, that was so worth it. It's never like that. He always lies to you. Don't believe his lies. And present. Take action. Get honest with God. Have you a Psalm 51 moment, a Psalm 32 moment where you come and you cry out and you say, there's death in my bones. I need help. Help me kill this thing. 
And then you get honest with somebody else. Because some of us in here are just lying. You're wearing a mask and lying like dogs. You've got to be honest with somebody. 100% transparent about what's going on in your life. And whether it be pornography or whatever other death it is that says keep it quiet, you'll never do it again. Next time you can tell somebody, it's lies. It wants to keep you in the kingdom of death. But Jesus has set you free from the kingdom of death and brought us into the kingdom of life. So we must continually consider what Christ has done for us. That the old man's dead and that we're alive in him. And we must regularly remember that Christ is our Lord, not sin. And we must continually present our members to him in worship. Next week, we're going to look at a bunch more sins about how we would fight against it um, in the rest of chapter 6. But for now, we're going to pause for a moment. I want you to take a second to, to pray before the Lord if there's anything that you need to wrestle with from what we've heard this morning. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing our, our final song, which is a prayer about this. Let's have a moment of silence, and then I'll pray.